Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Sean Moriarty wrote 15 live book guides, which go deeper into some of Axon's APIs. So these already assume that you know a bit about machine learning. And Sean does say that he is working on some other material. But this is a cool resource just to be able to expose more of the internals and what's available with the Axon library. And Quinn Wilton noticed new material on axon.display.asgraph slash three and was surprised that this function hadn't received more attention. And Sean explained, that's because I was implemented last week. Yay. What I think is fun is as people start to create libraries around making this a good experience in Livebook, then they realize there's opportunities to actually add more things that make it even better in Livebook, which is just cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So Sean also teases a new axon.serving module, quoting some of his tweets here. Uh, During my talk, one of the future features of axon that he discussed was an axon serving module suitable for deploying axon models in a production environment. So the idea here is that it, continuing to quote him here, integrates seamlessly with Phoenix applications. So you don't need REST or gRPC or some other way to communicate with an an external inference service. You just call axon serving dot predict and you're done. Oh, baby. Yeah. (laughs) I I like that. Call one function and you're done kind of stuff. That's pretty cool. One call, that's all. (laughs) And uh, so he also has some benchmarks of like how much quicker is that than the, you know, the the usual solution for serving up models. And uh, he he compared it to torch serve and initial numbers look to be about 20% faster than torch serve. So, hey, not only, you know, can the feature be supplied by Axon and the you know Elixir ecosystem for machine learning, but it can also be a little bit faster than the usual solution. So that's uh, just an, another reason why the Elixir and NX and Axon you know machine learning solutions continue to be compelling for you know anyone that's looking into into getting into that space. Very cool. Moving on, Dockyard is now sharing LiveView native weekly updates. We'll drop a link in the show notes. In this week's update, they describe how they are working on Swift UI modifiers and the challenges that they represent for defining the layout in an XML-like tag structure. We really like the openness and how they're explaining the complexity of the problem while also soliciting feedback. Yeah, back, back when we were kind of recapping ElixirConf and, and LiveView Native was one of the big, big announcements there, I speculated like it is using Heeks modules right now, but maybe eventually this will be like a Seeks module, like a Swift UI kind of like EEX kind of engine thing that that uses the Heeks engine or something like that. I don't know. They haven't talked about that here, but I just reading their blog posts here, I wonder I wonder if they're going to end up creating their own engine to support this kind of stuff. We'll see. I don't know. Still speculating. But speaking of, Brian Cardarella of Dockyard and LiveView Native fame uh, started populating a list of Swift UI views that they are going to attempt to bring to LiveView Native. So there's a big long list of these things uh, in a GitHub issue. So if you have experience in Swift UI and you want to help contribute what LiveView Native could feel like, you might go check out that big list and see if you can pick up one of them. I'm sure that they would appreciate that. So if you're interested in tracking just the progress of it, uh, go check out the issue as well. And you can uh, see when it closes. And, you know, as as all those UI elements are filled out, uh, it's just easier and more complete solution to use for your live view and native projects. That's a big old list. 
big old list. What's nice about that list is if you're just wanting to keep tabs on it and what the progress is, it's a great place to just watch and see as things that maybe you care about are becoming implemented. So again, Swift UI, so this is all UI controls, right? You got stuff like images, context input, buttons, links, menus, pickers, indicators, shapes. You can do random shapes, of course. Stacks. You just can't escape component libraries, can we? I know, right? (laughs) They're just everywhere. Layout transitions. That could be interesting. Forms, of course, you got to have forms. Groupings of forms. Scroll views. You know, Swift UI developers know what all these things are, but they're pretty similar to what we do in the web, web space, too. Speaking of Swift, the Apple Swift Evolution Project credits Erlang and Elixir as inspirations. So what is Swift Evolution? Well, it is a GitHub project that maintains proposals for changes and user-visible enhancements to the Swift programming language. And this message that they're sharing appeared on the Distributed Actor Isolation proposal. So they're thinking distributed actors for Swift. That's interesting, right? And what they said is, just to quote it, We would like to acknowledge the prior art in this space of distributed actor systems, which have inspired our design and thinking over the years. Most notably, we would like to thank the Akka and Orleans projects, as these are library-only solutions. They have to rely on wrapper types to perform the hiding of information and or source generation. We achieved the same goal by expanding the already present in Swift Actor Isolation checking mechanisms. We would also like to acknowledge the Erlang Beam runtime and Elixir language for a more modern take built upon the same foundations, which have greatly inspired our decision. However, taking a very different approach to actor isolation, i.e. complete isolation, including separate heaps for actors. And I I just think that's great because I'm like, well, you know, if you're getting all this ideas and inspiration, just just use the Beam, right? Just... You don't have to like try and re-implement it, right? Just just use it. It's easier to rebuild it though than to like take some existing stuff and port it, right? Right? It's like so much more fun to just rewrite. I, I like how they say they acknowledge Erlang and Elixir for a more modern take. Uh, now, am I getting my history wrong here? But did Erlang Erlang come out before Akka and Orleans? <laughs> yes, I think Elixir maybe has the more modern take on some of that stuff. But what I do like is the pointing out that recently in the previous news we talked about Akka and being inspired by Erlang, but because it's still a JVM project, they don't have these ways of doing complete isolation and processes in the Beam have heaps for separate processes, which gives you a a whole nother level of behaviors and uh, protections. I appreciate that they gave credit too. Next up, Rustler gets an improvement to aid, NX, and Explorer. It looks like Jose was driving this change. They wanted a way to mass push binary tensor data through Rustler. After they all worked together, they ended up with a powerful improvement for this use case. So this means We have the building blocks for zero copy data frames to tensors. And it turns out this is a big improvement for NX, but it might also yield itself improvements to other Rustler integrations as well. So very cool stuff going on here. I I have to point out that memory copy, you know, data copy is a big complaint that folks have for immutable, typically immutable systems like uh, Elixir and Erlang. If that concern can be satiated, you know, then then I think that's going to let folks move on, move on, <laughs> move on past that issue. And then, yeah, of course, there's going to be performance uh, improvements along there too. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. 
Also in the news, Figma gets purchased by Adobe. Adobe announced that they were purchasing Figma for $20 billion. Now, I, I would gladly take $20 billion myself. You can have my personal project for $20 billion. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Figma rapidly became a favorite tool for designers, and so that earned them a $20 billion paycheck, which is great. But, you know, there's, there's complicated feelings that go along with bigger companies like Adobe purchasing fan favorite tools like Figma. I don't know. May, maybe one interesting thing that came out of that is that Nathan Wilson created a proof of concept of a, a Phoenix app that basically clones Figma, right? And he's calling it Figma X. First of all, don't expect Figma here, right? Like Figma full-blown experience here. This is just a proof of concept. But it is pretty cool because it creates a distributed Elixir application that runs on Fly.io. It's clustered, so there's a lot of you know folks that can simultaneously edit visual design elements. It's pretty cool. Heads up, not mobile-friendly. But it is pretty cool on, on the desktop, and you can create shapes and see other people on there. So that uh, address is Figmex, F-I-G-M-E-X dot NathanWilson.com. You can go check that out. Just to reiterate, it's really just a technology proof of concept, but shared editing is pretty cool. I've seen that in a couple places. Livebook has that with like text editing, but this one's more canvas based. It's built upon Phoenix and PubSub, right? And channels, not LiveView. It's not using LiveView, but you know, the, the amount of event tracking and JavaScript involved makes sense to just use regular Phoenix channels, which is effectively all of the WebSocket power of LiveView just without the HTML, you know, updating that LiveView does for you. So so the requirement is to rely on Canvas events. And so there's a library called Fabric.js that helps with that. That just makes, you know, LiveView the wrong tool for the for the problem. Anyway, so it's really cool and it's open source, I believe. So you can go check out the source and it's just interesting to see. And last up, SpawnFest 2022 is getting ready to gear up. So SpawnFest is an online competition and it will start October 15th at midnight UTC and it runs for 48 hours. It is a pretty intense, short competition. It's for teams of size one to four, where every member of the team has to be an individual, not an organization. Got a link to the rules and the uh, awards as well, because it is a sponsored event and there are prizes. And some impressive things have come out of previous SpawnFest competitions. And if you're saying, you know, that would really be cool. I'd love to do this. Maybe join with a friend or something, but I don't have any great ideas. They even have a list of ideas that people could take and grab and run with if they want to. Because it is sponsored, you know, some of these things are, hey, make something really cool for a live book. You know, things like that could be really interesting. In past years, we've actually talked with some of the SpawnFest winners to learn about the cool stuff they did. So I will certainly be paying attention to what comes out of this. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Clemen Quaresma. Clemen, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm happy you could join us because you have been working on this library that showed up on our radar, and it's called Ecto-Anon. This seemed really interesting because this whole idea is around anonymizing data easily using Ecto. Anonymizing data, that, that's an interesting topic. You know, there's a lot of GDPR possible implications that we might want to account for in our applications. Maybe there's this security, we want to be careful about things or privacy conscious. There's lots of different reasons we might want to anonymize things, but I also want to understand how this works. 
and what gets anonymized and, and how do I get back the data that I might need or anything like that. So I'm looking forward to talking with you and getting deeper on this topic. But before we do that, maybe you can tell us more about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I currently live in Paris, in France. I was born and raised there. I uh, finished school almost three years ago. And so far, I'm a back-end developer. I work on the jungle. Nice. So how did you end up going into Elixir? Because presumably, you didn't have Elixir at school. Yeah, that's right. So I had a previous experience before finishing school with Elixir, doing a temporary work with a, a company. That was my first introduction to, to Elixir. And right after that, when I finished school, I joined Welcome to Jungle, and they already did Elixir then. And it was just a way to keep going on Elixir, something I, I really liked uh, back then. And um, it's been almost three years. I guess one more question I have is around functional programming, because I know that's a, in schools, we're taught object-oriented programming, and then functional programming is a very different mindset. I think functional programming is actually easier to learn, that you have to unlearn the object-oriented stuff. But I'm just curious, what was that experience like for you? So I actually studied a bit of functional programming uh, at school with a bit of OCaml and uh, Excel. OCaml and, uh, Excel. and Haskell? Yeah, Haskell. It was a, a rough first introduction to functional programming. <laughs> like you said, you had to unlearn the oriented programming. It was really hard. And uh, I kind of put that on the side at first. And then I discovered Elixir, and it was a way to take a deep uh, breath and, and go for it in a nice way, I guess. All right, well, Clemen, I am ready to jump in. I want to learn how this works and what this is. So first, this is an Ecto-specific library. What is the goal with Ecto-Anon? Okay, so the idea is just to provide a way to simplify the anonymization pro process directly into your um, schema modules. So we just bring a new way and a, a simple entry point to anonymize all your data all at once, or just specify, for example, a user and anonymize it uh, directly without any, any trouble. To maintain also uh, this process, we, we provided some, some tools. That's pretty cool. So like the way that you use you use this is alongside your schema, you would use ectoanon.schema and then like you declare your your schema, right? You say field name, field age, you know, that stuff. You also define like a non schema and then you throw in a list of, of fields there. That's how your library, I guess, is able to to track like what fields are sensitive. But how does it work after after that? So now I've now I have listed the fields that are sensitive. How do I how do I use it? How do I take advantage of it? Yeah, like you said, we just wanted to keep the focus on your schema module and not step outside of it, like declaring a new file to assess all the anonymizable fields. So we we just wanted to keep that focus in this uh, in this file and just to run the anonymization process. We just wanted to give a single entry point and a single function to run. So you just have to, to execute ectoanon, the, the name of the library, uh, dot run, and you just specify which repository you're using with ecto and which resource you want to anonymize. And based on this resource, uh, the library will find the anon schema and anonymize every field, uh, depending on the, its primitive type. And or custom also anonymization. 
Gotcha. Okay, so I, I've I've done a little bit with anonymization, and that you must be a pro at this word by now. Anonymization so it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? That's a hard word. <laughs> so, so I've written some functions in in my applications to anonymize data, and they've all they've all sat outside of the schema. Right? It's it's very tedious. But in my functions, what I've done is like if I'm scrubbing an address, I'll put in a an obviously fake address. You know, is there is there some functions like that, or, or is anonymization here simply just removing that and like just like replacing it with redacted? Like how 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 does it anonymize the fields? It's a bit of both, actually. Uh, depending on the type, we just put simple and uh, obvious uh, data. Uh, for example, if it's a string, we're gonna just put redacted on it, so there is no confusion about the the string. Or for dates, we're just gonna give an obvious date, like the epoch time, epoch type. Temp. But we also provide functions, for example, the address you mentioned. We had the use case where we just we had the full address of a, of a user, of a user, like with the street, with the country, with the city, everything. To stay compliant with GDPR, we just wanted to have the city. So we had to provide a function, for example, to keep only the city. We also have some functions for phone numbers, for example, like if we wanted to keep the format for a phone number and not break everything, we have any constraints depending on the validations. We we just provided an anonymization uh, for phones, currently just for French numbers, but that's something that can evolve. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> because there is a lot of validation with the phone numbers. Yeah, I'm sure there's a whole database of how different numbers can be <laughs> can <Yeah>. be formatted. <laughs> so you mentioned a word in there, it got me thinking again some more constraints and validations. So I'm imagining this running like being something that just runs in the in the runtime, right? Does this affect what is actually stored in the database? How do you enforce usage of this, and and does it touch the database there? It, it touches directly the database. Uh, the idea is to directly change the data you have stored to keep, in our case, GDPR compliant. If a user wants to delete his information and request it. We should not have any more any sensitive information about him. So the idea is just to remove any data that's sensitive to him. By that, we just put some redacted values into this field. Or if we need to keep some um, some validations about some fields, we can create custom functions uh, to anonymize effectively the, the fields we want. Okay, I think I'm starting to really get an idea here of how this is intended to be used. So from what I understand, please correct me if I'm wrong, is my data is complete in that I have users with their phone numbers and everything that I need to actually run my business in my database. And then if a user says, I don't want my data in there anymore, we want to honor that request and remove their email and anything else, you know, addresses. But we also don't want to screw up our data. Like they made purchases. We don't want to, now these purchases didn't happen. We, don't, we can't delete the data, right? So we need to have our records that we can show invoices were paid or, or whatever. So then we just want to redact or remove some of that data that's sensitive. So what I like here is the Ecto-Anon library is not like a replacement for Ecto schema. It just sits alongside and I can just identify these fields in this schema are what we care about as being sensitive, the email and the name in this particular schema. So it sounds like then if the user requests 
to be forgotten and to be removed, that's when we can explicitly run this change and actually remove that data from the database. Is that right? Yeah. To, to try a little bit context on why we did that and to explain it a bit further. Before creating this library, we used to just alt-delete any information about our users whenever they requested uh, a deletion process. So it was manual, time-consuming, and we had no history whatsoever about our user deletions. So we couldn't scale on that. And we just said, okay, let's, let's build something if there is nothing that existed and nothing existed. So we just built our library. And the idea is exactly that. It's when a user requests his deletion, we just take into account all sensitive fields and just replace the values of them with related fields or with fake uh, values. The idea to be GDPR compliant is not be able to retrace back to the user. So we don't want to leave any information that we can like, for example, if our database is leaked, we shouldn't have any information about our user that requested a deletion. And also, you mentioned about the data in itself and um, how you can value still the data of our deleted users. It's also a part of the reason than why we did that uh, library. Like, for example, our data team grew so much that they wanted to have nice graphics and nice volumetry of our users and also understand how users consume our website. And ever since we had this outdated process, there had some discrepancies on the, the number of, like the total number of users. So for example, we had 1 million users and the next day we had minus 10 and then the next day plus 25. And it messed up everything and they had to catch up and just to, to, rea- to rely on their own mechanisms. And uh, that was one of the reasons to keep the data, but in a way that it's not uh, retraceable to the, the end user and to, to keep their, uh, their rights. Okay, I think I'm getting it now. You guys have said it over and over and Mark, you reiterated it. I get it now, but every time I look at it, I don't, it doesn't make sense like at first glance, but you define what you want to redact and then you run it on a record and it redacts those fields that you defined. It's because I look at this and I'm like, oh, okay. So now every time I run a query, it'll at runtime redact it on the output so that I'm not showing there. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not at, it's not necessarily at runtime. It's when I request to be redacted time. Exactly. And then there's helpful functions in there too, to like cascade to any, any joined records. And then there's also other functions to like, when I do a query also don't include any of these already anonymized records because I don't want to show them in a table of of emails and have redacted show up like every single time and then it doesn't filter correctly and doesn't sort correctly. Okay. I think I'm getting it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's got to be pretty complicated for like unique like especially on email, right? Yeah. Like you probably have like a unique constraint there. You 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 have to create like a, a unique anonymized address just to just to keep things, you know, running smooth without running into Migration issues. I bet data migrations is probably pretty painful. Not with this library specifically, but like the anonymization process can be quite painful for for date uh, data migrations. Yeah, because uh, yeah, I, I agree. Okay, the first time I looked at this, I was like, 
what why don't you just use like the redact true field on the schema or something you know yeah that's what i was thinking too i was like i don't get it <laughs> yeah yeah but this no this is about this is a workflow issue yeah about uh, I, I totally get it now and we definitely need that and and i imagine it's it it's it can also be really useful for even a, not about gdpr but like like if you publish apps on the on the app store you are now required to have a delete oh right, right? and and that eventually points to some back end. Right. And it would be great if some human right now at our company, some human goes in and does this. So like, <laughs> this is a great alternative to like, here's a form, you know, step one could be, here's a form, type in the person's name, click go, and it will auto cascade all, to all schemas and redact all his or her personal information. This is, I, this is way help. This is very helpful to, to automate that process. Because this could even be like in the account section of a user's own profile where they could go and see, I want to delete my account. And that what's nice about this is you can have that predefined along with tests, you know, validating that it's deleting all the stuff that's cascading properly. That is really helpful. But then also, I think the big benefit is it's not going to corrupt your data because you've already considered what, like, like one of the things I, I love here is uh, like you can anonymize a date and turn it into only a year, like maybe a birth date. Like we don't, we don't care about keeping your birth date, but we do want to know birth year, which is totally anonymous. Like there's millions of people born in a year. And it's just a, a matter of, we know some level of demographics that's still valuable to our company, but it's not identifiable to anybody in particular. So things like that, I think are, are nicely thought through. Yeah, it, and it's not just about like the GDPR or, or user scrubbing process. Clemens, do you do you use this in any other way? Like, for example, if you need to replicate a bug in staging or something, but you can't have like that real data in staging, is there like a way that I can anonymize this like on the way out so that I can put it into staging? Right? You, you know what I'm talking about? Like deleting directly in the in the stages environments. Yeah, like in a test environment or something like that, or even like yeah, yeah, something along those lines. That, that's actually something that uh, we, we're planning on. Like, we want to use this library to uh, produce a subset of our current data and to provide this data subset directly in our pre-production uh, or staging environment, but also in a local development environment because it's so hard to maintain, especially in a legacy product, to have production-ready data, but also anonymized data because it, it's really... Uh, important to have those pipe this function into a repo dot all and you you got all like your whole table anonymized right <laughs> yeah yeah let's, let's be serious though like every, as soon as your code is written it's it's legacy code <laughs> an in interesting stat mark uh, 140 million people are born every year so that is yeah 140 million four births every second there you go there's a random stat for you so we could keep it on the birth date and it would still be <laughs> <laughs> still be pretty anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> I love this idea that you talk about staging. I've worked in companies before where compliance was a concern. It's dealing with financial data, like banking data. You want to be able to run migrations and staging because it represents real structure of data. And we want to know what's actually going to happen when we do these things. But then you also totally need to protect the privacy and personal information like social security numbers, driver's license numbers, anything like that. You've got to keep all that totally private and protected, even from your developers. 
and the developers would be accessing staging. So I love this idea of being able to have like a, a weekly job or something that would migrate all of my production data through maybe yeah, maybe it's a, a reduced set. So it's not a full copy of everything, but a reduced set that's anonymized into my staging data. So I have a realistic structure. I could use fake names and things like that. So it's not just redacted for, you know, pages and pages of data, but, you know, fake names or something like that. I love that idea. I think it's great. And besides the, the, the anonymization process, because you, you can dump a full database for your staging uh, environment. But if you anonymize like we are currently, you will just have uh, every user with a redacted name. That's why we try to implement the first functions in our external library with pseudo anonymization and to create fake data uh, around it. So for example, you mentioned the, the emails before. We needed to have still this validation uh, to pass about the emails to sort of keep uh, everything that makes an email an email and to keep the domain, uh, etc. So that's why we try to also, besides the anonymization functions, to have pseudo anonymization functions. Man, I'm going to have to work with your team on on how to use Ecto Anon because like data migrations is kind of close to my heart. And like this is one of those things you just got to do, right? And it can be difficult. And so a lot of folks are going to be like reinventing the wheel. What, yeah. You, what do you like? What I know, Cage, you're probably just joking, but like you can't just put repo all now go anonymize all the data, right? Like that might be okay in some environments, but if you've got, you know, a, a 10 billion receipts to go anonymize or something like just paginate it if it's just for <laughs> staging. There, yeah. Like, yeah. You just got to paginate it. There's, there's a lot of things you, you have to kind of set up to make that, you know, a safe, a safe process. Like I said earlier, the data migration on this could be quite hairy if, if not done right. So this is one of those things that would be, that would just be so cool to have like an, like an easy pro, this is a workflow problem, right? And then same thing on like trying to get that data out into staging, for example, from, from production into like a, an anonymized I hate to say it, but like anonymized CSV so you can import it into staging. <laughs> but that'd be pretty cool. So I'll have to work with you guys once I have the data migration like library. I don't know what to call it yet, but Ecto and productions, I, part of my effort there is going to have like some Ecto dashboard kind of thing where you can run these kind of data migrations and it'd be pretty cool to have like an anonymization process, e easy to use in there. So that's pretty cool. You got me excited now. Now I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna think about it all week now. Well, speaking of migrations, I was just looking at the README for the project, and it was showing how there is support for migrations where you're saying setting up a table, like create a table and add these fields, and it adds an anonymized function. Like you have timestamps, you have an anonymized, and what it looks like is that it's adding a field called not anonymized, like as a boolean. Is that right? It's setting a default, presumably, so that I can say that this table has data that could be anonymized so that I can selectively query out and only show me data that hasn't been anonymized. Is that right? That's, that's exactly that. The idea is to, be, to, to give an option for the end user about that if they want to use this, uh, this field or not to filter out any anonymized field, uh, anonymized uh, resources. What we do is when you run the function, we just modify every anonymizable field. And uh, once it's done, we just put true to this boolean, so you can just filter out uh, this row instead of just looking at the values and say, oh, okay, his um, email now values to redact it. 
Nice. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. And then when you say, I want to anonymize this record, it will automatically flip that for me as part of that process. Exactly. So here's what I've been thinking this whole time. I would love to not define another thing in my schema. I would love for it to be an option on the field macro where it's like field name is a string, a non-true. But I bet you can't hijack in Elixir other modules so easily like you might be able to do in something like, say, Ruby. Could be an idea. Yeah, but did you guys try that? Does that... Yeah, we, yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you, I think uh, you can uh, retrace that back on our GitHub. But that's why we did in the first commits. We just implemented a new field macro, uh, but we stumbled upon, upon uh, many problems, especially with the other fields. Like, we had to replace the fields, the many, the uh, as one, extra macros. So, at the end, if t- uh, tomorrow Ecto changed something about those fields, we have to catch up on that. And that's a maintenance issue. So we just said, okay, let's keep this focus into this file, but let's construct something else and let's uh, let's bring this unknown schema just on top or on bottom, but in the same file. Easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the GitHub organization that this is living under, which is WTTJ, which is Welcome to the Jungle com. So I would love to hear, like, it's a fun name. Good song. So is that the company you work for? Like, what is Welcome to the Jungle as a GitHub organization and uh, group? So as a company, Welcome to the Jungle is the first job platform uh, that helps companies to promote their employer branding uh, to attract and hire the right candidates for them. It's also for the candidates to have a, a better vision of the company itself with interviews and photos within the offices. And you know, get to know the company before applying, which you don't have on the regular job boards website. We also have a work media for anything related to work, uh, for students, for HR, etc. There's another project that I've actually used that you guys maintain called Algoliax. I didn't end up using it. I didn't end up using Al- Algolia, to be clear, not not your library, but... But that was a pretty straightforward, straightforward integration. Like that was that was pretty cool. So in case you know, a listener doesn't know what Algolia is, it's a it's a third party search indexing uh, service. So the idea is that you make a map of your record that you want to index. Tailwindcss.com uses it for what it's worth. A lot of websites do. It's pretty popular in open source because I think the service is free for those open source websites and, and services. Uh, and yeah, and you don't have to use something like Elasticsearch or, you know... Anything to avoid using Elasticsearch. Like, you just pay however much it costs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's... But, it, you know, I'm not a rep for Algolia and I don't use it. But, like, the experience when I was I was rolling up on it was uh, was good. It was good. Like, it would it would show you, like, where in the text it matched. And that was that was pretty, pretty great. Uh, so, with Algoliax, it was just a simpler way to say, this is my record. This is what I want to index. And now go send those records up to Algolia, and you still have to figure out when to do that. But that that was you know that was a good process. So perhaps you would you would do that like on insert or on update or something like that. I don't know. Choice is yours. But that was a really great library. Like, and Algolia is like pretty popular in the you know the web space. There's only one other Algolia Elixir library, and I'm not sure how recent or maintained it is at this point. But yours came up in my search, so it's pretty great to see you know those that 
helpful and useful like Elixir open source libraries that you guys are doing. And on top of that, it's called Welcome to the Jungle. Like, come on. Come on. Like Guns Guns and Roses song reference. Yeah, that's nice. You know, like in court, you know, uh, and then at the bottom, bottom of Ecto Anon, you see it's it's a, a copyrighted by Coruscant, a Guns and Roses reference and a Star Wars reference. Okay. Like this is probably a cool group of folks. <laughs> Well, Clement, if people are wanting to learn more about this, are there any resources other than the GitHub page? Obviously, that's a great place to start with any library, but are there any other resources where people can go to dig in on this? Yeah, we actually released uh, an article on Medium, on our, our Medium, WTTG Tech, about how and why we built uh, this library. So you can find more information on this and uh, you have the full context of uh, all this. Yeah, so that article on Medium really digs into like the right to erasure, you know, GDPR. I just think it's a respectful thing, right? Like to to be able to, a, a user said, yeah, I wanted to try out your thing, or maybe I used it, maybe I had to use it for work, whatever, but I don't want to have my data there anymore. I'm done. And just to, you know, sure, we would love to have all of our customers be with us forever and keep giving us money and love us, but you know, things change and we want to respect that. So that's very cool. That's a good resource. We'll include that in the show notes. Well, Clement, what is next for Ecto-Anon? Is there any future development or plans that you can share? So, so far it's production ready at Welcome to the Jungle. We use it uh, daily and our users also when they want to delete uh, their account. Uh, we have thousands of users using it. So this part is covered. Uh, we know it works effectively. And uh, we have some issues already on the GitHub that we, we want to tackle or we want to, the community to contribute. The idea is to evolve this product and satisfy every need. So it has a, a good future for us and hopefully for, for others. Yes, nice. So if people can contribute, they can go check out. I see in the GitHub issues, they're already tagged with enhancement and, or proposal saying, so like that's great. It's a great place to jump in and be able to start contributing. Because I think this is a library that I'm glad you could come on and talk with us so I really get a better picture of what this is and, and how it helps. Because I can totally see adding this to a project from the beginning because it's really low cost, right? Initially, I was thinking, oh, is this encrypting my data? So that, you know, it's like, no, it's not doing any of that. Your data is there. It's normal. If I had to rip it out or I wanted to, I could. Uh, the library does a minimal amount of changes to my database. All it does is it sounds like it's just adding a field basically to track if it's already done the work of anonymizing something. So then it just makes it easy that when that time comes and I need to delete something and I I have the ability to just say anonymize this account and that I can already have that set up, can cascade down into whatever records I need without corrupting all of my data. <laughs> that, that's the key point, right? The idea is just to, to provide a an easy way to do to do that. It's very cool. Well, I really appreciate that you guys have created this library, gone the extra effort of going public with it, and then writing a blog post about it. I think that's wonderful. Clement, if people want to get in touch with you or want to get involved with the project, where should they go to do that? Uh, for the project, that can go to the GitHub directly. Uh, like you said, we have many, many issues and we just can chit chat about it. For me personally, uh, I have my GitHub and my LinkedIn, where I'm the most uh, active on it. But also a Twitter, where I'll just for now repost uh, different articles I post, and presumably this uh, this podcast. Well, we'll have links to ways people get in touch with you in the show notes. So definitely, you'll want to check that out. But that's all the time we have for today. 
Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Thank you.